Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out all the very many things that we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we've got a pretty stellar edition of Reviewing the News, if I do say so myself. So that means it's time for Cody Townsend and me to take a look at some of the bigger stories that happened this past month in the outdoor industry. And of course, that means I am referring to this trillion dollar industry, which we're going to talk about. We've got an update on some Blister 100 merch, a little bit there. We have an amazing (laughs) Mountain Town relationship advice question. We talk about a review of the Blister podcast that contains maybe the best burn I've ever seen. You'll check that out. That's kind of near the end of the episode. I need to know if the writer of this review knew what they were up to. It does not go well for me. Let me just say that. (laughs) But it was amazing for sure. Five star. If you're going to burn somebody, scorch them. Anyway, as always, thank you so much to the very many of you who wrote in with potential topics and questions and the rest. Please keep them coming, folks. We can't touch on everything, but we love seeing what's on your radar and discussing some of the great stories and topics and questions that you send in. So thank you so much. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Bluebird Mountain Sports, which is our blister-recommended shop in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Now, the Bluebird boot fitting team is led up by none other than Charlie Bradley, who not only is a master boot fitter of over 30 years, Charlie has been my own personal boot fitter starting back about 20 years ago, and he also worked with and mentored Blister's own Kara Williard, who is an exceptional boot fitter in her own right. So lots of history with Charlie here, and you can schedule an appointment to get your own boots dialed this season. Bluebird also offers an extensive rental and demo program. They stock a great selection of retail hard goods, including skis, boots, snowboards, bindings, and more. And they have a full-service tune shop to get your skis and boards in great shape before you hit the mountain. So head over to bluebirdmountainsports.com to learn more. And when you go in or set up an appointment, tell old Charlie that Jonathan and Kara said hey. This episode is also presented by Open Snow, which is our favorite weather app. And it's especially great because when somebody makes jokes about, let's say, snowfall in Colorado, you can send him, by which I mean Cody, screenshots of the Open Snow forecasts and the snowfall reports. And while he, let's say, spent his weekend not skiing POW, well, we were skiing deep POW here in Crested Butte. Yesterday, I was skiing on 114 millimeter wide skis inbounds, and it was glorious. So take that, Cody. 
you snarky Californian. Anyway, if you haven't done so already, you can easily remedy the error of your ways by heading over to opensnow.com blister to test drive OpenSnow's best features with a free full access extended trial that runs through January 31st, 2024. So head over to opensnow.com blister. And as we do, we will include a link in the show notes of this episode. And now, let's review the news with Cody. Here we go. Cody, how are you feeling today? I am feeling like I've felt quite often in this last year, year and a half since I started childcare. It's sick. Again. Mm-hmm. Like I Mm -hmm. texted my trainer because I always keep updated how I'm feeling, all these things. And I was like, yeah, yesterday I was like, I think I'm getting sick again. He's like, Jesus, do you need to get your like daycare center checked out? (laughs) They might have some health code violations. I was like, no, it's just like a woman's house. And uh, I don't know what is going on, but there is this like my theory is that we people in Tahoe travel a lot, especially at this time of year. And we have at our daycare like not a bunch of full-time kids, like a bunch of part-time kids. And so in the in-between, they're all traveling and one goes out to a different part of the world and gets sick and brings it back. And so we're just getting like this contraction of global illnesses at our daycare. And uh, my wife and I tend to get all of them alongside our son. So yeah, that's how everything's going on my side. How are you doing? Better. I mean, I, I have a fractured arm, but I'm, mm. I'm, it's not keeping me from skiing. And I don't get sick uh, every other day from daycare poisonous stuff. So I, I think I, I might be winning. Yeah, yeah, you probably are. I'm not, sickness doesn't keep me from skiing. It's the absolute complete lack of snow that is keeping me from skiing. Um, it's pretty pretty dire out there. It doesn't seem like many places are doing pretty well. I mean, back east, seems like they've had a good start, um, specifically Vermont. And then Europe is have a good start, Alaska. But Western North America, high and dry. Can I tell you something right now, though, as I look out my window? Yes, what is that? It's snowing here mm. right now. And more snow coming in over the weekend and Sunday. And so Crested Butte, powder capital of the world. Your snow is different, though, because like I will say, I, I'm going to quote my wife this morning because it snowed here last night, too. She wokes up and she looks out the window. She's like, oh, it's like Colorado. I was like, what? It snowed an inch and it's cold outside. And it was. We got one inch and it's cold outside. So um, we're not used to, you know, snowing one inch isn't something we brag about. Wow. Granted, I'm saying that while we have zero snow, so, you know, I I can't, uh, you know, can't really say too much. This is reason number a million why everyone hates Californians. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what's like 999,000 is me texting you start times for these and (laughs) without the PST or MST in it because I've... Yeah, the no time zones. And then I, I... I recently sent you that. What was it? I think it was OpenAI had a um, a very big uh, corporate event or shareholder meeting or whatever, and they just put the time without any sort of PST MST for a global event. And they were like, "This is how you know Californians think they're the center of the world is that we don't even put a time code for any sort of announcement of time because 
PST is the one real time. It's so false. <laughs> but yes, those are those are most of the nine hundred thousand and plus reasons why. It's mostly just directed at you. Mm-hmm. I really don't have many beefs with like a lot of Californians, but that is absolutely the thing I like least about you is the refusal to ever say MT or PT. Yeah. Yeah. So you could really, it seems really easily solvable, you know, and then you'd be like, Ellsworth, that's that guy that just really likes me across the board, as opposed to Ellsworth, the guy that pretty much likes me, but really hates me about one very specific an easily solvable thing. Yeah, but like, you know where I live. You know how I look. I'm like Californian through and through. Like, if I'm talking to time, I'm talking Californian. So it's like, kind of on you as oh much as God. it is on me. Like, I mean, oh, use your use your brain just like a, like a half degree more and you'll figure out what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Let's let's get on to, to happier topics. Like the fact that we barely have any listeners, you know? The 100, our last reviewing the news, we said we we crowdsource. We wanted some ideas. What would we do for some some merch, some, some 100 swag? We had some, first of all, we got a lot of suggestions. So thank you to everybody who, who wrote in. But I think, I don't know how much we want to say yet, we could say something like we're getting very close to having an answer here. Um, do you want to say more than that? No, I think we can leave the design an actual surprise for people. But I think we're gonna we came up with a plan is that we're gonna come up with a, maybe print like a hundred and one t-shirts. And so if we sell out of all hundred and one, then you prove me wrong that there's more than a hundred listeners. So I think that's that's the the game we're gonna be playing here. Yeah. Well, I think I'm. I think we make a hundred and three shirts. One for me. One for you. And then if we sell out 101, that's proof that we have more than 100 listeners. So I think that's going to be our plan. I don't even know if I've told you this yet, but can I talk about what I think is going to be our runner-up idea? Someone wrote in and was like, y'all should do the 100 logo from Succession. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I definitely remember right? when we watched that show and it popped up and their genius idea was called <laughs> The Hundred and I was kind of chuckled. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they would like actually own like copyrights for that, like from the show. For their fake TV show. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a really strong idea. The logo, frankly, is quite bland that they use on the yeah. show. So I think we have uh we have a a, a better idea, but I, I loved that one. And, and man, that's some, um, a good, I'll never, I'll never be mad about a good succession shout out. So, uh, but anyway, really thanks to everybody who wrote in with their ideas and we'll, uh, certainly by the next reviewing the news, I think we'll have our plan in place and hell, we may even have the product up and, It'll be the real diehard, the real 100, who now will be looking for that on the site to scoop up the 101 available shirts. So I don't know. That's kind of the plan. That's our update. And uh, and if none of them sell, <laughs> perfect. then maybe you were right this whole time, Cody. Win-win. <laughs> perfect. It's always a, first, always a first time for everything. Let's review some news. We've got a lot to talk about this month. 
And I think what we're going to do is actually kick things off with a with a with a Blevins Corner special. So this is uh, an article that came out from Jason Blevins, uh, reporter at the Colorado Sun. And the story here is that the outdoor recreation economy tops $1.1 trillion, fueling efforts for legislative support of the industry. Thoughts, Cody? That's a big number. It is. It's huge. And I mean, even going further, it represents 2.2% of the nation's GDP and 5 million workers. Um, so like, what I like about this is like the outdoor industry is becoming more defined. Now we're starting to see more and more economic data to it. What we don't like about it and what this headline kind of speaks about is like, where is the representation of this industry in government? And there's more and more, you know, uh, associations and trade groups out there. But I think we all know it's a bit splintered. And you and Paul Forward talked about it recently of being like how the hunting community and the fishing community has so many amazing groups and associations that represent their interests and values. And they're divided up among species, but ultimately like they're very well funded and they do a lot of work. And we don't quite see that in the outdoor industry. Um, we are seeing certain things. Obviously, my reference, Paul, actually texted me and he's asking what's out there. And it was like, well, POW has been a big one. They've been kind of starting to advocate for a lot of specific to the winter recreation industry um, on behalf of ski areas, on behalf of brands. Um, and they're doing a good job at that. And they are creating action and creating meetings and lobbying. Um, but <clears throat> from there, like, where where is the representation? And I'm going to answer my own question with this because what you also realize is in this data, it's not just like what we think of the outdoor industry being like, oh, like it's North Face, it's ski areas, it's Patagonia, it's REI. It's like these very kind of outdoorsy style brands and companies like in Blevins article, he notes that um, travel is the largest contributor to the outdoor recreation economy, counting for more than 339 million or 40 percent of the outdoor economy. So travel is airlines, travel is cars, RVs, and then you go into the boating sector. And so this outdoor industry is like very large, but like not as homogenous as maybe you and our listeners kind of think of it as like, you know, when we're talking about boats, we're talking about boats that go in Lake Tahoe and then the Lake of the Ozarks and, you know, party boats and houseboats. And we, whether you want to define that as outdoor recreation in the way that we know it, um, that's up to you. But ultimately, like, uh, uh, as a business, as an industry, they do lump that in together. And so it's, it is really hard to kind of unite this very large and very kind of diverse trade into one representation on Capitol Hill. I think that certainly in this country, money talks. And I do hope that the more of these headlines that are out there, the larger we see this industry get, it does light fires under, well, first of all, the outdoor community, but then also just that it makes it easier to get the attention of legislators and the rest to protect, maintain, grow in a thoughtful way 
um, I don't know, the entire natural world uh, and the accompanying outdoor recreation industry. Yeah, and I, I mean, it, these are the kind of things, and these are the headlines, and it's quoted in there of being the the T word, the trillion of being something much more impactful to those in positions of power. So, like when we see things like Utah state representatives, um, you know, suing the federal government for protecting wild lands because they want to do whatever it is with the interest of real estate, whether it's the interests of mining um, and oil um, extraction, that's where they're kind of fighting for. And who knows what it is, but it's not outdoor recreation, obviously, if they're suing against the protection of these places. And so this trillion dollar economy is like, look, we're, we're in a shifting world and this outdoor industry, this outdoor recreation economy is growing faster than so many other industries. Like I, I'll give some context just for what a trillion dollar industry is. Um, I went and looked up some kind of like stats of the biggest industries in the US and you've got like hospitals at 900 billion and we know how big and how financially uh I, I can't even not unregulated hospitals are and how much money they make and they're a 900 billion dollar industry groceries is a 600 billion dollar industry petroleum refining a 500 billion dollar industry utilities a 650 billion dollar industry and we know how much lobbying powder utilities have within state and federal government so it's like it, we do need more representation and, and i'm sure even though it is a divided industry and you're going to be representing things like auto travel and RV travel, like the fact of the incentive is a place to protect a wildland, to make it so that we can go visit it, we can go recreate in it. That is in the interests of these large companies like the auto industry, RV industry. So it's like, I, I just, I hope that our industry can reach out to these other industries and show the value of it while also reaching out to public governments to be like, look, like you got to take this more seriously. We're moving more in this direction than in the, the uh, mineral extraction and real estate side of things. Where do you want to go next? Um, <clears throat> well, you brought this up and it was pretty interesting in that um, it's related to our industry and the way it works, but backcountry.com is launching a namesake private label at wholesale. So this is from outdoor retailer. Um, and probably everybody knows what backcountry.com is being a, one of the largest e-commerce e platforms, um, in outdoor recreation. Um, and then they for a while have had some private label kind of clothing and goods, making duffels and uh, ski jackets, ski and snowboard pants, whatnot. But this is different because they're launching a private label while trying to sell that to specialty retailers, to brick and mortars and other e-commerce sites. So like very large shift that is seemingly Getting some pushback. I don't know. What was your take upon reading the article? I think it's crazy. I think the idea, I mean, backcountry.com has a <laughs> relatively long, inarguably complex history and has been sold and sold again and 
certainly has had its controversies, and I wouldn't even just call it a controversy. I would say has done incredibly damaging stuff in its pretty recent history, right? When they were going and suing pretty much anyone and anything in terms of trademark infringement, companies that were using the term backcountry. And given all of that, to now be attempting to get brick and mortar stores to carry, and I'm just going to call it backcountry.com gear. One, I guess, good luck. And I mean, look, brick and mortars carry whatever you want, right? But one of the things from this article that really jumped out to me the chief product officer at Backcountry is quoted as saying for why they're doing this, quote, we saw white space in the marketplace and products that we didn't think were meeting our athletes and gearheads needs. And I, I'm sorry, I'm just going to call bullshit on that. We review gear here at Blister and have been doing that for 13 years. And I do not believe you when you say that all of these athletes are clamoring for backcountry to make products because they can't find the right mid-layer or duffel bag or jacket to meet their needs. I don't believe you. Now, they might have some really innovative ideas out there in the rest, and it shows my lack of creativity and ingenuity or something, and I'm happy to be proven wrong on that. But that strikes me as the very lame sort of marketing speak. And and I just don't. Like, I will believe that when I see it. But there are a lot of manufacturers out there making some really impressive products, more so than at any other time in history. And so to just sort of throw this blanket statement out, um, I, I just don't, I don't believe that to be true. That's my take. The thing is, the most innovation that we see specific to outerwear is not coming from the brands themselves. It's from the fabric wholesalers. And what I, like over the last couple of years, so I've been involved, Solomon's kind of really reinvested in trying to make better outerwear. And so in one of those things, I've been kind of tasked and allowed to buy a bunch of different brands gear out there and test it. So I've been personally testing a lot of brands out there. And one of the things I've realized as I start to research it, it's the companies that they're buying fabric from that are doing the true innovation. And then they just put a, some design touches on it, a zipper here, a pocket there, call it good. But what I see is that's where real innovation is going to come from. Because when it comes down to it, like when you're looking at the marketplace of outerwear mid layers, like it's so crowded and it's so hard to sift through. And the differences between each brands is really small. It comes down to logo marketing and kind of colors is really what the difference is. And pocket placement. And I mean, you know, like, and th and those things matter. I don't mean to disregard those things, but that's where like my, sorry to, sorry to interject, but that's kind of what I mean. There is some really good stuff being made and it, 
the devil is really in the the minute details at this point in time. And so to just act like, I mean, again, you're an athlete, Cody, and I review gear, but to this, I just don't like these lazy statements and untrue statements, in my opinion, and I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I just think like, I don't, I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're thinking. And I, and I do not believe that backcountry has this team of product designers that is so far superior to what other brands have in the apparel space or these unique connections to factories or companies working on different materials. So it's just hollow and empty and you're going in now to try to get brick and mortars to support this new venture. It's, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. They're they're definitely in a tricky spot because like backcountry.com has a long history within skiing and outdoor world as being a pretty good brand partner in many situations to a lot of manufacturers and wholesalers. Um, over the last few years, some of that stuff has been more questioned, but they're still pretty valuable and they're still pretty big. I mean, what I think they're listed as like top 15 uh, e-commerce website in the U.S. So like they're they're doing well, but like in this is kind of like a symptom of the need to grow and this like going into something with like, I, I just don't see it work. I mean, there was like a quote from the Wes Allen, the principal at Sunlight Sports, an outdoor retailer in Cody, Wyoming. His quote, in my opinion, no specialty retailer in their right mind will carry this line, which is like pretty damning because like you're like not only taking away business from specialty retailers. And that's not to say like, that's a bad thing. Like e-commerce is e-commerce. Like specialty retailer has shrunk because of e-commerce. That's just the way the world has worked. And so, but like to say you're gonna take away their business to continue and then be like, oh, and we'll also support you. Like, it seems a little weird. Like, I, I just don't see that mixing up, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I mean, one of the things things I've learned in business, and maybe they're trying to prepare themselves for another sale, because you quite often see before a sale, a new launch of a bunch of new potential business. And so their owners, I think, is TSG, which is a private equity firm out of San Francisco, might be trying to flip them again. And so they're going to say, like, yeah, we have this much more market reach because now we're doing our own kind of specialty retailer line. And we see if we're good, you know, carried in 500 stores, we're going to make another $20 million. So we're going to bump up our valuation another hundred million dollars or something like that but yeah it's definitely a little weird um i mean good luck to him like there's uh, yeah I, I know a lot of good people that work at backcountry it doesn't seem like you know it's like the ownership isn't as core to our industry as it once was it isn't as supportive of kind of the industry as it once was i mean 20 years ago i used to ride on backcountry and it was like seemingly one of the cool cool things out there and it was you know obviously in competition to specialty retail but it was also doing really great things and you know that's a bygone era by this point that is something i found myself just thinking more about is just what companies out there are actually doing good things in the industry, doing good things for our industry, 
right? What companies out there aren't just trying to take money from skiers and mountain bikers. Yeah, be extractive. Not being extractive, but but additive and supporting it and are actually passionate about it. And I don't know, um, you and I maybe are in a position to have a better handle on some of that. I think we do see some of the stuff happening behind the scenes. And I'm just finding myself like, increasingly interested to see like who just wants a cut of this and who's actually interested in fostering it and cultivating it. I don't, I don't know. So, and this is just, I probably have said enough about, you know, in this conversation about where I would put backcountry on that spectrum. And I would welcome them continuing to what I would regard as occupying a more productive and beneficial end of the spectrum. But to all companies out there, while we just talked about it, it is a growing industry. When we're really talking about the soft goods side of the industry, the hard goods side of these sports, that actually is a pretty small and close knit element of the industry. And yeah, um, I'm just... um, I might be losing a little patience with the companies that want to act like they are really core and they care about these things and then do very little to actually show that. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that sounds too vague, but I think I'm going to leave it there. I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, totally. I think, I mean, it's one of the reasons why sometimes we've been like critical of Vale, or at least my criticism of it was like, you know, kind of not necessarily supporting events, supporting ski community, supporting marketing that makes skiing look cool, like those kinds of things. It's like a little bit more like take and a little less gift back. And I think it's just because like, honestly, like if you're a skier and you're an outdoors person, like you, you want to be a part of this world. You want to be a part of a community. And when it feels like the brands are not a part of that community. It feels like they're not a part of the community you want to be in. So it's just, uh, I think that comes to it. And, you know, to me, like the market will decide, um, you know, uh, I think backcountry.com, just even with their private label, probably broke some very profitable relationships they had while all of a sudden they started competing. They might make more margin, but I think it's also a tough game to play. Like, I, I don't know this for a fact, but if like, let's say you're not selling North Face anymore, you're like, well, that's a pretty big account that you probably can make a lot of money off. I don't, again, I don't know if they're selling North Face, but saying if you're going into the private private label business, you start competing with very established brands that have a lot of clout and make a lot of good products that people actually want. So, um, but yeah, anyways, um, speaking about community, we can go into this next one about a little local community, um, pretty close to myself being Incline Village. So it's on the other side. It's in Nevada, um, but it's only about 20 minutes away from where I live. Um, and they had... Uh, recently banned e-bikes from riding bike paths and sidewalks. 
And um, the the headline was a new e-bike ban in Tahoe town is riling some locals. And essentially a county ordinance that pushes e-bikers off sidewalks and some bike paths, quote, have to take them to the roadways and follow the same rules of the road as cars do. Which was an interesting kind of ban and ordinance because we've talked about it on here just like as the article and some of the the reasons behind this was pretty much unsafe e-bike accidents going too fast, buzzing people that are on their walk, buzzing people with kids and showing that like, yeah, there is some dangerous behavior on e-bikes, but Incline Village went to just outright ban them and push them to the streets, Um, which is the first kind of full e-bike ban I've seen of this. I've Obviously, don't follow every ordinance, but this is one that made some big headlines. And I don't know, what was your kind of initial takeaway when you read that headline? I guess I didn't regard it as that surprising in that, frankly, bikes, like uh, non-pedal assist bikes, I don't think really belong on sidewalks anyway. I mean, if you're talking about a four-year-old kid on a strider, I'm not talking about that. But I, like, to me, I actually kind of thought in many places it was um, technically illegal to be riding a bike or an e-bike on a sidewalk. So I didn't view that as some, you know, landmark thing And I also think that, yeah, I I guess I would just say, yeah, if we were sort of doing city planning and the rest, e-bikes belong on roads, not buzzing people walking on a sidewalk. I totally agree with that. But there's two things to this. So, like, there's a quote from the sheriff and his sheriff tone. He says he's quick to point out that this isn't a ban. The department won't be forcing children to ride in the streets or pus- pushing safe cyclists going the speed limit, 15 miles an hour, onto poorly marked bike lanes. The plan to use the new rules as a way to address reckless e-bike behavior. So there's two problems with that. One, you created a law or ordinance that is essentially the act of riding on the sidewalk or or this bike lane is illegal on an e-bike. And you're going to leave it to the personal discretion of sheriffs and other individuals to who they prosecute or not. So let's say like I want to teach your kid rule abiding behavior. You're going to say like, oh, like you're four, so it's okay to ride on the street. But I don't know, maybe you did it a little poorly and you're going to get ticketed. Or like this personal discretion thing, you're like, isn't that not law? Like law is law. That's what it's supposed to be. And so like to dictate who, how they enforce that based on just like personal discretion, that allows for a lot of potential abuse, in my opinion. Like, I don't know, you could be like in a hoodie and you have a like suspicious bag and you're riding safely, you're under the speed limit, but they're just like going to pull you over. But then that same person, you don't have a hoodie on and you don't have a suspicious bag, you'll be fine. Like that's the kind of stuff you're like, well, that could potentially lead to abuse. So why write an ordinance like that? And then my second take is just kind of like, 
cars are just always going to keep winning. Like why we obviously have the infrastructure we have. And instead of trying to like, hey, like e-bikes are going to be a new part of our world. There were e-bikes are a really good solution for commuting, for students, for children, for people that don't necessarily have the funds to fill up their, you know, car with $6 gas, a $6 a gallon gas, like, and go to work. Like, this is going to be a part of it. So, like, let's figure out some infrastructure to make this happen. Like, he, the sheriff literally says, we have unsafe bike lanes. And so you're going to push those people into the roads, into more dangerous situations, into situations where they're taking more of the personal risk because you're saying a few people abused it and we're doing it unsafely like that's where you're just like we're creating laws because it's the easy thing to do and we're not creating infrastructure and adapting to a new world because whatever it is you could say government's ineffective you can say people don't want it you can say whatever but we're just not building we're just creating new laws and those are the my two things is and yeah cars keep winning and that's the unfortunate side of things like we will our american society just it centers itself around the car and, um, you know, putting up even signage that says like, hey, cars can be in the street. It is your duty to safely pass them. You know, they have those like share the road signs, but I can't tell you how many times I've passed one of those signs on my bike and then gotten buzzed by a car um, at 60 miles an hour. Like they don't work. So like, I don't know. I just feel like it's lazy. It's a lazy way to create a false sense of safety. Yeah, the ban on the the sidewalk ban, I'm fine with. Yeah, I can see that. The ban on e-bikes on bike paths, that's that's tougher. It, it just feels like it's not holistic thinking. You're like you're going to push e-bikes like okay, like the speed limit through a lot of that area of Incline Village is anywhere from 25 to 45 miles an hour because I know this because I ride my bike on it. And so like depending on what bike e-bike you have like the fastest legal e-bike is 28 miles an hour so you're gonna say like you have to go into the road even though cars could be going up to 45 miles an hour and we have a car culture and you can see it in the meme world too that like hate cyclists and hates sharing roads with cyclists and you're gonna say you have to go into the road and take your own life into other people's hands and also uh, a culture that is dominant by cars and aggressive towards bikers and not seeing this as a potential really good solution for commuting. It's just, I don't know, it pisses me off to see stuff like that because I, I've become a firm believer that like e-bikes are an incredible solution for local commuting, for, for environmentally friendly transportation, for ease, for totally like putting less stress on, for like building, like you know, like those ordin county ordinances where if you build a new building, you have to have like 150 parking spaces or whatever if you're going to have 150 people in there. And so it's just like continual sprawl in the name of cars. You're like, well, let's have that and say we make our infrastructure more bike friendly. People can ride their bikes there. Again, I'm I'm fine with banning bikes on sidewalks. I also want to see more people on e-bikes as commuter tools. So I very much want that second thing to happen. But when it comes to bike paths, that's where you almost wonder, would it be better to just put speed limits? You know, if they're worried about super powerful, like big motor e-bikes, 
why not, what if you put a speed limit of 20 miles an hour or 15 miles an hour as opposed to banning? What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that could be part of it. I think also at the same time, like I I commute on my e-bike here a ton and it should be like if there's pedestrians, you can't pass more than 10 miles an hour or something like that. Like that because there's miles and miles of e-bike or of bike trail with nothing. So that's where you're like, I'm going to be going 28 miles an hour because that's my the top speed of my bike. And that's how I get into town quickly and also choose not to drive my car because it doesn't take that much more time but like if you see someone on the bike path whether it's another biker another uh or pedestrian you're not allowed to pass them more than whatever five miles an hour they're going or something like that would be would be much better i like that that might be the best idea you've ever had on reviewing the news the 10 mile per hour speed limit when passing Right. Because I mean, and it's funny, this is where we have all kinds of rules, right? When you're mountain biking, um, who's got the right of way when a downhiller, uh, a comp- you know, encounters um, someone hiking uphill or pedaling uphill? We have our rules along those things. And this might, there might actually be, you know, signs up in this case on bike paths and the rest, make it actually more of a law. There would be the question of enforcement, um, but at a certain point, at a certain point in a society, you can't create laws around every single behavior. You need human beings to play nicely with their fellow human beings, and we do have those kinds of codes of ethics in the out in different you know areas of outdoor sports and the rest and. I think we might be talking about something similar here. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it has to be a law to be able to enforce that because I know that's what we do. And mountain biking is obviously just kind of more self-policed and etiquette. Um, but, you know, as we, you know, there's people that are not going to follow etiquette rules, whether it's because they're uneducated or whether they don't care. And that's when you have to have some laws. But that's where I just I'm like this outright ban kind of thing especially the headlines that come out of it and the lack of accompaniment of some sort of further infrastructure to protect e-bikers and commuters. That's where I just look at it as like flawed. Um, Hey, Cody, you know something else that has flawed rules? The NFL. What? How often every single Mm. Sunday do we see 30 calls and we're like, that's a bad interpretation of that rule. So this isn't let's let's keep it real. Some other things in life we like a lot also pretty horrible when it comes to rules and the enforcement of said rules. Mm, but this is this goes back to that first point I just made. There is very strict interpretation of rules that are written out to a T in the NFL handbook or guidebook or whatever it is. But it's all because of personal discretion and because, like, they say that, like, a holding, for instance, happens on every play and it comes to a ref to decide what is a little too far. And so that's where I'm saying, like, yeah, this personal discretion, like you make a rule that outright bans it, but you're saying we're only going to enforce it when we see unsafe behavior is the same way you're talking about in the NFL, where it's like, yeah, that hold was just eh, it was a little too far. You're like, well. 
every time I did it before you didn't call me and you're like, well, yeah, now we called it because you were doing it a little far. And that that's what fucks it all up is and why we read reports on NFL refs going into the Philadelphia game this weekend, because we want to know, are they going to be favorable to our style of play or not? I didn't do that. I'm not saying anything about that in this big game that I'm very worried about and thinking about at all stages of my day. I'm really proud of us, how we snuck NFL talk in while talking about e-bike bands. That was, that was, that's some of our finer work. Um, You're welcome, everybody. All right. This is fun. I I need a fun one. This isn't even Canadian news. No, more, normally or frequently we rely on our Canadian news to provide a little bit of levity. But I I liked this. This came in from a Blister member, and I think the the title here was retro sneakers. How about retro skis? And so uh, this person said, ski companies they could take a page out of the sneaker business and start bringing back retro skis the same way that Nike brings back retro Jordans all the time and makes gobs of money. There are zero R&D costs here. Just grab the old blueprints and molds and fire out some retros. Actually, I'm pretty sure Moment Ski Company does this already with their limited release skis, so obviously it works. What are your thoughts on this? Should should ski companies get into the retro ski production business? Yes and no. Like, so Solomon has done this in a certain way. They last year, the year before, released like a, a 1080, Solomon 1080 throwback. It was on a modern ski, but with the 1080 graphics. And it like disappeared instantaneously so the idea behind it makes sense but have you actually like gone back and looked at a solomon 1080 and how different of a ski that is compared to modern skis like i forget it's like 82 underfoot or 76 underfoot it is so narrow and like nobody skis on anything like that plus monocoque construction like we could debate that. It was really fun, but maybe it didn't last that long. So there's like a little bit of back and forth. But actually, I was just trying to think, like, what would be your top three skis that you would bring back? Well, this is a much discussed topic at Blister. Uh, the Rosignal Sickle was a reverse camber ski, 110 millimeters underfoot. Everybody at Blister absolutely loved it. And we talk, I talked to Rosignol at least a couple times a year about getting that ski brought back. And I mean, one of the things that they say, and there, there is, this isn't quite as simple, maybe. This is where the analogy breaks down a bit with like retro sneakers, but they're like, yeah, um, we'd have to go find that mold or that mold was probably already destroyed. So it's, it's not as simple as like tweaking an existing mold. You know, you'd like switch you know flip three switches and then you've got the sickle mold but um that would be very high on the list there was my favorite and beloved moment bibby pro but that actually is we kind of got that one back that ski is back um so those are those are maybe my top two um and we already have one of them back 
I don't know. What's on your list? So the first one, I think it would be the Solomon X-Wing Lab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that ski? <laughs> yeah. That ski was the most crazy combination. So it was 202. It had a pintail. And it was really stiff, yet also quite soft. Like the the tip, I remember be like quite. It was really damp, but it would definitely be slapping. And like kind of, if you're straight lining through crud, would be a bit all over the place. But you could stomp anything on that ski. Being slightly almost pintailed and being so damn big, like that ski changed how I ski forever. And it was like a pretty short run with it. We ended up, uh, Kai Zacherson and I designed the Solomon L Dictator, which was like kind of a modern evolution of it. I think it was like 114 underfoot. It was super stiff. It was a 198 length. And that ski was, I, I skied on that ski in my best segments of all time when you, when, People actually used to land on their feet and not backslap. It was because of skis like El Dictators, where you could just stomp the piss out of anything. So one of those two, I'd probably say the X-Wing Lab. The Volant Spatula has to come back. Like that, it was interesting. We went through this run of skis where reverse side cut, reverse camber kind of became a thing. And I remember like, you know, specifically Tanner Hall and... God, what was this one movie before the massive? I'm blanking on the name right now. But there was a year where Tanner was skiing a bunch of pillows on that ski, and he made it look incredible. Um, And then you had the spatula. um, And those skis, like, they kind of have their really, really niche place. And, like, it's bummer that that's completely gone. Um, So so that. And then um, I would, you know, but this is just personal. The Atomic Powder Plus was the first powder ski I ever skied on. I bought him for $25 off this old guy in the locker room and he made me shovel his deck and because they were under his deck and that was how I kind of paid for him and like I pretty much skied those for three years until the edges like there was a little hole in the sidewall to the base with the edge still going through you could put your finger through like I beat those skis up but those are my first like fat skis and so they changed my life but so yeah, I would spatula, atomic powder plus, and X-wing lab. God, I'm, I'm realizing like they're all really big, very like chargey kind of skis or very niche products that don't necessarily exist anymore. Well, that's one of the things we we talk about every year in our buyer's guide. We have a section all mountain chargers, and that section is without question getting smaller and smaller every year. And, you know, I think it's just interesting. And I, our kind of take on that is it does seem like there are a lot of skis that you can still push pretty hard, but they have gotten more forgiving, more accessible, more forgiving. And so, you know, there's a bit of a balance there, right? What, you know, ski companies are in the business of selling skis. And so to find a balance that the marketplace will support for some more accessible, more forgiving skis that you can still push pretty hard. That seems to be where everything is being focused as opposed to companies just being like, here's an absolute nuclear missile, you know? Um, But yeah, you're not wrong. Like the, when you, when you start rattling off the list of true chargers, you're looking at a list of a lot of discontinued skis. 
Yeah. Um, and we'll probably get into this this whole discussion one day on Blister Cinematic because uh, yeah. I've been going and rewatching yeah. some old movies, but just this that that specific era and some of the skiing that doesn't seem to exist huh. anymore. But we'll get that <laughs> some other time. Do you want to get into Canadian news? We have like three. Cool. Uh, we do. <laughs> So the you actually pulled these all in, um, sent in by, su- suggested by people from the outside. So the first one was sent in by David yep. Cobol, um, Farmer Dave, um, about an eight-foot <laughs> zucchini, um, which is not going to be the Canadian news story we go into. Then there was another one sent in by Johnny with yep. a lot of ends, and it was uh, Snowmobilers Save Moose. But I actually think like last week we might have done a moose <laughs> saving story in Canada. I I just seem to remember talking about one guy saving a moose, saying it was the most Canadian thing he's ever done. So I didn't want to go to that either. I, yeah. Um, but what we did what I did want to go into is uh, the most Canadian news of this month was sent in by Tyler mm-hmm. Hawkins, and it came from the New York Times, and it was Olympic hopefuls need a home where retirement community stepped up. New Zealand's curling team wanted to train with the big boys in Canada, and a group of enthusiastic seniors has provided housing, a cheering section, and lots mm-hmm. of advice. And if that isn't the most wholesome story I've read this month, then I don't know what is. And if wholesome stories don't come out of Canada, I don't know where they're coming out of. So that, to me, was the most Canadian news of the month. <laughs> I, I love this so much. I, I just think in general, this kind of annexing of, you know, elderly people off into retirement homes, um, you know, and we just kind of separate them off from the rest of society. This, this should be a... A singular example to try to be repeatable everywhere to bring these young New Zealand athletes into a Canadian old folks home. Uh, it's phenomenal. And like, let's get more creative with this, right? And um, the, this mixing uh, of youth and experienced people who've seen a lot of stuff in their life. I like this very much. I wish we could figure out how to just build off of this one example and make this happen, like almost make it more of a norm. Um, And I am no expert on the state of retirement homes and kind of what is happening there to integrate into communities, but to link people up with young people or, you know, young adults who are going after, you know, important things in their lives and pursuing passions and, you know, trying to become top curlers in the world. I, we should see more of this. What do we need to have happen to make this more of a common thing? Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about like the value of older generations. And like, I don't know if you've ever seen, there was this research where they essentially presented let's say it is the trolley problem, but if you have two tracks and it's one is someone in their 80s and one is a child under five years old, and they did a global study of what would you pick? Would you pick to uh, sacrifice the, the elderly person for the young person or the young person for the elderly person? And there was like some very 
big correlations between nations and how they value either their children or they value their uh, their elders. And it was the Asian nations, Japan, China, were very much more that we would sacrifice and yearn towards sacrificing the children and valuing the older generations. And then uh, I believe it was actually France that was on the furthest reaches that would sacrifice the elderly over the the children. And as you'd expect, America was on the the, the more attention to children side of things, um, which kind of it was just this like shows how we value generations, what we value youth or age and wisdom. And so it was pretty interesting just to kind of look at it. And there's no judgment that really came with that study. You can judge for yourself by researching it. But I totally agree with you. I think like we tend to disregard elderly generations and we tend to not try to learn from them. So stories like this is pretty awesome because it was really wholesome talking about the the Kiwi team and going into this retirement home and befriending them all. So it was great. It's amazing. Yeah. So thank you. Thanks to everybody who sent in Canadian news suggestions. I I like the idea that maybe that's a new spinoff podcast we do. It's just every week, the latest Canadians saving a moose story. It's the same story every week, but um, it seems like there's it's happening enough that uh, we could we could make a go of that. And um or, or we don't do that. But anyway, good on you, Canadians. Keep keep helping out the moose the moose population. Where to next? Oh, would you want to get into some mountain advice, or do you got a? We got a good one here. All right, we got a really good one here. Really good one. Let me read this. Uh, we're gonna keep this one anonymous, <laughs> or we could really, really <laughs> mess somebody's world up potentially by not. Let's okay, try okay. not to do that. <laughs> so the title of this Mountain Town Advice email that we received was, I don't want to ski with my boyfriend. And it goes like this, Jonathan and Cody, I am a longtime listener. If I've counted correctly, I think you're now up to 103 listeners. I don't know. We'll see how t-shirt sales go. I'm a longtime listener and longtime skier. I lived in Canada for the first bit of my life and really appreciate going fast and having the most fun I can when I'm out for the day. Unfortunately, my longtime boyfriend is a snowboarder. He started about five years ago when we started dating, and he's one of those people that's just super athletic and picks things up quickly, so he's actually relatively good. My problem with him isn't necessarily his ability but that we just want to do other things when skiing a resort. I like technical tree runs and carving big turns while he likes to find a side hit or a tree run and just lap that for an hour. It drives me insane and I really enjoy skiing alone. So I always suggest that I go off and do my own thing while he does that with our friends, but he doesn't want me to leave And we end up just arguing because we don't want to do the same thing half the time. Question, how do I make him see that we will both have a better day on the mountain if we compromise where we need to and split up when it's appropriate? I can't stand another season of arguing and him and all of his friends wanting me to take pictures of them getting six inches of air. Oh, damn. Oh, damn. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, shots fired. Wow. Thoughts. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I'm glad you're keeping this anonymous because that everything was fine until that last line. That was just like shots fired for sure. Um, yeah, woo, this is a tough one. This is definitely tough, but I like I I feel for the writer and I feel for her. So, in order to get through this problem, we're gonna have to have a few assumptions. Like, I think the first assumption is that she is probably a better rider slash skier than he is a snowboarder. Like, it seems like that. She's been doing it for longer. He's picked it up quicker. She does her thing, and he's just getting into it. So that's what I'm kind of first getting at. Um, So with that assumption, I think the root of this is that he wants to show off for you. He wants to show that he's getting good at this. And he continually is going into side hits and these tree runs that favor his abilities. Because to be fair, like technical tree runs and carving big turns aren't necessarily the things you're going to gravitate towards on a snowboard. Um, Going into more flowy terrain and doing little airs. Those are the kind of things that I feel like snowboarders tend to gravitate to. So like, I think uh, uh, one factor of this is like he he he's wanting to show you that he's getting good at this, that he can do this, that he's excelling at that. I think that's the nature even of good relationships as we do kind of want to prove our value to puff up our chest to show that we are good partners. And when it comes to skiing and snowboarding, that's based upon your skills. So in order to get through this, I think there's one thing is like starting to acknowledge that fact and maybe complimenting him and saying like, wow, you're getting so good at this. Like, like you should work on your carving or something like that. You should work. Let's work on this stuff. Or I don't know. That's, I kind of feel like there's some root of that in here, but it's always hard to tell from an email like that. So that was my, my first thought is he's trying to show off. How can you kind of Stroke that ego, feed that appreciation for what he's doing to bring him into more of the terrain or more of the kind of things that you want to do while out on the ski hill. So that's my first thought. What's your first thought? (laughs) Homie's in the wrong here. Dude, dude needs to go off. First of all, he's not even having to go off by himself. He's got his crew of friends getting six inches of air. So I have to say that I, I'm generally on the side of people going and doing the thing they want to do and having freedom as adults to do that. And our, our writer here, she just wants to go be left alone to enjoy her technical tree runs and making big carved turns. And she's not leaving her boyfriend to fend for himself solo and frankly not that that would be wrong if she were telling him to do that i don't think he's got a crew they can take pictures of each other getting six inches of air but it i don't understand people going to the mountain and because there's really only one reason to go to the mountain and that's to go enjoy being outside and doing the thing you want to do out there And then him being like, no, no, you can't go do the thing you want to do. You've got to come with us. 
I don't get it. And I actually worry that there's maybe a little bit of a control freak element or actually what I think it is maybe is a jealousy element. And it's like, dude, let let the woman go do her thing and let you go do your thing. And guess what? You can all meet up at lunch or after skiing and tell each other about the sick big carved turns you made or the six inches of air you got. Everybody wins. Well, but that's what I think. Like he's wanting to show off. Well, he needs to stop that's that. That's what I'm like. Because he's about to get broken exactly. up with. And deservedly, deservedly. Totally. But that's what I'm saying is sometimes like the best thing to do is to kind of like stroke that ego a little bit. Like when when people have like a very big ego, it's pretty easy to manipulate them because you know their weakness. And that's where I'm saying and not necessarily manipulate your boyfriend, but like start to like. Yes, that's what you're saying eh, a little bit. <laughs> but like that's why he doesn't want you to ditch his his crew. I have a feeling. Like, cause he's like, I'm doing my thing. Come along for the ride. Um, so like talking to him about that, it's hard to always do those, have those conversations. And that's where you kind of have to, you have an entry point with that. But then, so then regardless of all this, regardless of like, all right, these personal things, you're just saying like, this guy sucks, but like, how does she get through this? Like, here's the great thing about skiing. It's pretty easy to get lost very quickly. <laughs> no. I cannot believe, I cannot believe how much you are trying to dodge an actual conversation about these things. I am not, I am not saying come guns blazing at this guy whatsoever. I'm talking about having, I don't think we should ever do that in relationships. If you're at that point, break up with the person. But I think having a very calm, cool, collected conversation and just saying, hey, and lay it out. But I can't, so I, I'm a little shocked that you're kind of like, oh, stroke the ego or just go get fake lost. Uh, that's what I'm saying. That's how you enter that conversation. But it gets hard to bring up, like, obviously they're already arguing yeah, right, about right. the conversation that you're wanting them to have. That's why I'm saying, like, the entry point into it to make you not have an argument to start this because they've already already discussed this. That's what I'm saying is like, I think the root of this is him wanting to show off, him wanting to her be a part of his new crew and she wants to do her own thing. And so it's like, in order to like start that conversation, in order to like get him to, to come to your side a little bit, you need to get people's guards down. You, That's what I like. I just tend to find when you're going into an argument, you need to kind of like strip yourself down or build that other person up to make it feel like we're on the same level. Cause maybe he's insecure that you are a better skier than him. And like, he's wanting to show off. I, I don't know exactly those dynamics. That's what I'm saying. When you're going into an argument, you either come at it very humbly or you build that other person up so that they're, they're not immediately putting up defense walls. That's what I tend to find when you have disagreements with, with others. And you, you have to look at yourself in these process. Uh, processes so i don't know um but that's what i was also saying like or you just you just disappear for a couple hours and go rip some groomers and then you ask where you were at lunch and be like oh, i got separated you lost me you were going so fast through the trees and those side hits <laughs> oh my god you are you are on the wrong side of history on this one cody i just think this is hey we're coming into a ski season look we've argued in the past about this here's my thing for this season we can absolutely do a couple runs together, 
But then I just want to go get some time skiing the stuff I want to do. I think you should absolutely go have your time with your friends hitting side hits. And we'll circle up at lunch and set times to meet at lunch or after. That's This is in the scheme of life problems. This is the least significant problem in the history of problems and very easily solvable. And if somebody is so clingy or so jealous that this dude is like, absolutely not. You've got to come with me. This dude is wrong. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, maybe this is uh, the, the, the kind of the schism, but like I tend to try to want to make those things work a little <laughs> bit more. That's what I'm saying of like, find the root issue of this and try to come at it from that side. And here's potentially a, a way to approach a, a conversation that doesn't end in an argument. And that's why I do. That's why I said what I said first, not just like go ditch the guy and go skiing. Um, but I mean, if you ditch a guy and go skiing and he gets super pissed and maybe that is shows a schism, but I'm trying to preserve relationships. You kind of came out this guy, like this guy sucks, break up with him. That's what I'm getting your vibes out of it. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not saying that I'm, I may, but what I might be saying is if you calmly and coolly explain what I've said, and then he's like, absolutely not, then break up with him. Yeah. 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 You know? So Yeah. Okay. Well, I I can't wait to see if we get any comments. I would love to hear what people would advise. And if they're, I don't think this is team Cody versus team Jonathan on this one, but what would, I would love to hear what our listeners think of this and what they would suggest. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, answer if the guy doesn't, yeah, I think I'm clearly right. If homie like can't handle this and he's like, no, you have to stay with me. Ditch that dude. Cause because there are going to be way bigger issues and challenges in a relationship that come up. If he can't handle this one, this does not bode well for things that actually matter in the world. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, agree I don't, that. I don't think you do actually. You, I think you think I'm, I don't know. Who's the guy, who's the guy that's been married for uh, 12 years, you know, buddy. It's, 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 it's a great point. It's a great point. <laughs> you, you are better at keeping the peace maybe. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to build bridges here. Build bridges. Everybody, we should all be building bridges. Except for the one advice where I told them just to break up. I feel like there was one in there where I told them to break up. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, there was. Well, folks, keep sending in your relationship advice questions if you, I don't know. I don't know how we did on this one, but uh, let us know how you think we did on this one. But we would love to hear from you because it's fun to try to adjudicate stuff that, actually happens like a lot i i mean we we i don't mean to sound like nobody else is having this conversation i think there is a spectrum of conversations you know or people would fall on a spectrum here in relationships and so we very much appreciate the question and um i hope you get to ski your technical tree runs and make big carved turns in peace that's all that's all i want for you what we're reading and watching i i wanted to ask you about this I I haven't asked you about this. Your mom came out with a book and I don't know much about that book. I saw that you went and maybe did a talk with her about yeah. it. Please, please enlighten us. Yeah, um, well, background, and I think I've said this, but my mom's longtime journalist, won a lot of awards, like best writer in California by the California Newspaper Association, like 
three or four times in a row. Like she's very accomplished writer. Since she retired from journalism, she's gone into trying to write books, write fiction. She's had a couple books published, but more on the kind of the independent Amazon uh, publications, and they have done decently well. Um, and then this one, this book, The Beautiful in the Wild, um, has been really picked up by Berkeley Publishing and is getting pushed and it's like an actual big time book and it's doing pretty well on the charts right now. Um, it's a mystery thriller, um, takes place in Northern California and Alaska. And um, yeah, but what I would say, what I'm continually amazed about is my mom's writing of characters is like, nobody else I've read before like and it's probably because of journalism of being meeting so many hundreds and thousands of people and getting to know them and her way of writing a character so you know exactly who that person is every single detail about them in a very short amount of time her character development is super strong and that's what I think is really stands out about her book but uh but yeah um I would say you know it's uh definitely more my one critique I told her this I was like it wasn't geared towards me as much and definitely a little bit more of a feminine oriented book um because well, and maybe that's my own kind of when you read a book and your mom is writing it and there's sex scenes in there, I can say that is as awkward as it fucking gets. <laughs> I'm like, no, mom, no, we've never had sex ever. <laughs> we, we do not believe these things. So uh, maybe that's my re- personal reaction to it. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's getting really well reviewed. Um, I read it. She writes in such a way that it's a page turner. I think I read it and like three days or something Mm. like that um so really good holiday read especially because it takes place on the winter time kind of dark and scary so um Mm. as a christmas gift definitely suggested for people out there what else have you been reading watching or listening to um so i've been reading i got an advanced copy of a book called the darkest white by eric blem um eric is um he was a he was the Senior editor for, I believe, Transworld Snowboarding for a long time. He's been a snowboard writer forever, and they moved into writing books. Um, I actually read a couple of his books in the past and didn't necessarily know who he was. He reached out to me, sent me a couple of advanced copies, and I'm already like a quarter of the way in, and it's really, really good. And it's uh, the story of Craig Kelly, um, who I don't know that much about um, other than he was a legend in snowboarding. And my dad, when he was a snowboarder, used to ride Craig Kelly pro model boards. And so um, he tragically died in an avalanche in one of the most infamous avalanche incidents in Canadian, kind of modern Canadian history. I believe oh, I guess eight or 13 people died. I, it was pretty wild day and he was unfortunately a guide and one was one of the, the fatalities in there. And so it's tracing kind of his life and that avalanche incident and um it's just it's really good just so far because it's a lot about snowboard culture that i definitely don't necessarily know about but mainly through craig's lens and why he's had such an impact on this sport um of snowboarding and for for so long so um been really really enjoying it very cool i should check that out you know now that i'm almost a snowboarder no, yeah, you're almost going to be. How many more reviews you, you got? 39. 39. All right. Yeah. And then I you think we could get that. Break in. your other arm. <laughs> <laughs> 
I need matching arms. Yeah, totally. Just you know? next podcast is you in a double sling, just like, hey, <laughs> can someone come press the record button for me? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Thank, yeah, season 23-24 goals. No, I, I'm still excited about it. I really want people to hurry up and get us to the 750 Gear 30 reviews before I change my mind. I feel like I've been riding like this strong wave of just excitement to do this, but I also feel like that could change at any moment. So I feel like we just need to lock this in. But um, did I already ask you this? How much time have you spent on a snowboard? A decent amount. I mean, a few days a year, every year, I would say. Every yeah, totally. year? I have a couple of snowboards, but and I don't know. It's It's fun to mix it up, but... Yeah, as I don't know, it's never fully like grass me. Pow surfing, I think, is incredible. I love pow surfing, but it's hard to get the chance to do that. Usually snowmobile or boot packing. And, um, but I think I'm actually going to be building up a hard boot splitboard setup because that's my one issue with splitboarding is the boot setup I think is so bad um I just the, the the lack of the range of movement the clunky feel of them the lack of edgeability to them and there's really good hard boot setups out there and I realize I have a lot of the base platform that a lot of the companies like Phantom Industries makes like they I think they use an atomic boot or which was almost like the Solomon boot that and then they cut it up and make it even softer. And I was thinking about trying to set up a hardboard split splitboard setup so I can, you know, when I'm doing my daily laps, mix it up a little bit. Dude, we had <clears throat> I'm trying to find it, a review, a blister podcast review. Yeah, let me um the person who wrote that, their handle is Lax Monkey Man. And this review was a challenge for Cody. And Lax Monkey Man wrote, Reviewing the News is by far my favorite podcast series I listen to. It's so nice to hear a... By the way, I wanted to ask you about this. I forgot. He says, It's so nice to hear a highly educated academic's take on the outdoor world. Hell yeah. The thoughts are well articulated and incredibly thought-provoking. It's also nice to hear Jonathan's take. I love this guy. Hell yeah. And I'm like, this is either... the. I was like... Raise your hand if you did five years of graduate work at the University of Chicago and actually taught academic philosophy at the college level. I was like, this is either the greatest, like, subtle dig, and and this guy knows this is hilarious. I could have written that email or, <laughs> or, shout out to you and absolutely damning to me, right? I mean, either way, it's an incredible take, but I kind of do want to know. We need to hear from Lax Monkey if the guy's like, yeah, no, it was like the best burn ever. Or if he's like, I had no idea. Cody just sounds way smarter than you on these things. That's amazing. Well, I will say <laughs> University of Chicago, I mean, if you come at it from the economics realm, the economist realm, doesn't have the best reputation these days. So maybe he's like, he's hearing, you know, University of Chicago ec economists <laughs> in the news oh. a lot and how oh. badly they've fucked everything up. And so maybe he's thinking it's a pretty shit school. <laughs> I don't know. Could be. I was I was philosophy. I had nothing to do with the econ department there. I wanted to bring that up. I forgot. I'm so glad that this came up because I was like, that's an amazing you really win. You just win hard in, in this review. But anyway, he says, uh, yeah, so uh, so nice to hear the academics take. 
It's also nice to hear Jonathan's take on things. Uh, But then he says, a challenge for Cody. Because of me, you now have 101 listeners with this monumental... Oh, and with this monumental achievement, you should join Jonathan on the odyssey to explore the world of uniboarding down hills. Please do a splitboard video. I need it. The world needs it. You may even need it. Sounds like you're halfway there. I've been, honestly, it was always a thing on the 50s. Like I wanted to do a swap out. Like I was wanting to do one with Jeremy skiing and me snowboarding. And I wanted to do it on a challenging one. Um, but it's just kind of like never really worked out in, what, in any regard. But um, I don't know. I might, um, you know, without delving my plans for the season, I might have a little bit more freedom. And uh, I would like to. I actually, like I said, I kind of want to get that hard boot set up going this year um because it's just the efficiency of slipboarding isn't as efficient as skiing and it's hard to go to a less efficient place and so that's uh, that's the only thing that's kept me away from it so i was like oh i should just build a hard boot setup so uh, maybe it should come i did get i posted some like a little three clips of surfing this last week and a bunch of people were telling me i need to become a snowboarder um which my response was that's too easy are you good? Like if we're talking about riding the resort, are you like a good snowboarder? No. I I mean, what's that definition? It's like when people I mean, not yeah, pro, no, but like but I mean, yes, I can get down anything, but it is it with style and grace and speed? Probably not. Um, just the same with my surfing. Like I can surf big waves. I can get barreled, but like what I call myself a good surfer, like probably not. But, but that's because I'm also like comparing myself to like friends that are really good at it. And the same would be when it comes to snowboarding. Like I snowboard with some of the best snowboarders in the world. So if I can't say I'm good when you're like, I can't compare myself to that. So yeah. 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 That was, that was, I didn't, see that coming that was an amazing yeah, that was <laughs> little little totally. tangent uh well, back yeah. to had you seen no, that re- had you seen that Not review by all. the way uh, it's like damn that one hurt that nah, one really hurt that guy's amazing <laughs> i'm gonna buy him a beer for sure <laughs> yeah what have you been uh reading and watching yeah i mean it's honestly thanks to the start of blister cinematic i've been catching up and re-watching a bunch of ski films. And so obviously we did our conversation about NAR. Um, I watched Apocalypse Snow several times as well as Apocalypse Snow 2 and 3 and 4. Um, I did watch Yearbook because you had told me that was the episode you wanted to do next. That's been super fun. So, and then I've watched Polar Star, of course. You and I talked about that a bit. Really well done. I mean, my punchline on that is I told you, I, the thing I actually loved the most about that episode was that you ticked the line off real quick and then we just kept going. And it was great because it sort of, to me, is a perfect example of what you've kind of been saying all along, which is the actual, you know, hitting of these summits and the rest... <laughs> in the scheme of things kind of arbitrary and it's about getting to cool places with good people and i that that film just um kind of subtly i mean you don't reflect on that fact a lot in the film but you're like hey we did it let's do some other fun things and cool things and terrifying things actually but really enjoyed that that was the first time 
in five years, I got done with a line and didn't immediately start going for another classic or race home because you've been gone for a while, see your family or whatever. It was the first time I felt like I had free time in the mountains in the last like five years. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. And yeah, it was a tricky movie to like put together. I would say like the, the it's two movies in one, like we've always made it the, the movies or episodes based upon this like journey to get to the top and the bottom of a classic. And that's how the story goes. But like that story quickly ends and i think a lot of people in the comments you could tell they were like wait we're 10 minutes in and there's 40 minute movie 45 minute movie what's going to go happen from here and that was actually how to structure the film so that you you get an intro to the place um but you don't necessarily introduce the characters too much because we're going to do that later and then the whole movie is going to end up being about about viv is like it was it was kind of fun and a, a challenge to to make this like two movies in one essentially and uh ultimately viv carried it he was like hey, without viv there i don't know what we would have done but it really did happen like what you see in the movie like it was that last day i was like this movie has to be about viv like we have just been blown away about how amazing of a dude he is how incredible he is in the mountains how obsessed he is with every little detail um of skiing of the the gear of climbing ability like you guys just it's incredible but then when you get down to it you're like well he's just an amazing human so let's tell that story so so yeah it was a it was a fun one i was obviously it was an incredible trip with some incredible people and um i'm glad people are stoked on the film yeah no very cool and one more i want to mention that i've watched your wife's film here hold my kid so that was that was a lot of fun, and we're gonna have Elise on Blister Cinematic talking about it. Hopefully, Jackie as well. Um, hopefully, not you. No, no, definitely don't. Because do now me. I'm sad because you're the academic. Yeah. No, you don't. You don't need me. They they were the they were the the force behind it, Jackie and Elise. So the one thing I'm kind of a little pissed about is that I've been making movies and films for like five years now and then she did her first one and it was better than anything I've ever made so you know first try it's like fuck but that's why I put a ring on it you know that's what you do you try and marry up marry up that's your good that's that's good advice also in terms of marrying up that would mean not marrying somebody who forces you to go with them and take photos of their six inch side hit airs. Yeah. That's not marrying up, Cody. Think about yeah. it. Yeah, maybe not. Hopefully he's got some other <laughs> positive qualities. <laughs> yeah. We didn't hear we didn't hear about any of those. We didn't really hear other than like good athlete. But then even that didn't so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we do a special not at, we do gear therapy episodes over on our gear 30 podcast. Maybe that just is a special couples therapy session. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, man, um, I should let you get going. I, I'm, I, I'm proud you made it this long. You didn't pass out or anything despite being sick. So job well done there by you. And, um, it's snowing here. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. So I might actually go get on the mountain. Hmm, sounds fun. While you do not do that. No, hmm. I will not do that. I'm going to go lay down on the couch. You might be this smart academic, but I'm going to go skiing. Yeah, you should. 
I'm jealous. I'm going to go skiing. I'm tired of running in the cold right now. That's all I'm doing right now. I'm definitely sick of it. Well, hey, man, as always, I appreciate it. I hope you feel better soon. We'll talk to you real soon. Sounds good. See you, Jonathan. All right, man. All right, well, that's a wrap here. Now, everybody, remember, tomorrow, Tuesday, head over to Blister Cinematic, which is our new movie podcast, to catch my conversation with the star of Apocalypse Snow, Regis Roland. You are not going to want to miss that conversation. And if you somehow have not recently watched Apocalypse Snow or listened to our first conversation that we published on Blister Cinematic last Tuesday, well, you got a little bit of catching up to do. And I promise you, you need to go watch the film because it's going to blow your mind. So you're welcome for that public service announcement. So that's what we got going on for you tomorrow. And then, of course, I want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this edition of Reviewing the News. Thanks to Cody, as always, despite his snarkiness, for another great conversation. Thanks to all of you who submitted great questions and topics. We appreciate it. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Blister Cinematic podcast feed. Check it out. We'll catch you over there. Take care, everybody.